Welcome to IBBA Insights, providing expert advice on buying or selling small businesses. IBBA Insights is presented by the International Business Brokers Association, the world's largest nonprofit organization for those helping others sell or buy businesses. Now, here's your host, Chris Diglio. I'd like to welcome everyone to another episode of IBBA Insights. And as always, we try to have topics and guests on that are meaningful to all of you out there that are listening, whether you own a business or you're a business broker, you're a business professional. And today, one of the topics I I have that I've been wanting to do for a little while is on private equity. When I got into business brokerage 25 years ago, it was almost unheard of for a business broker, especially a Main Street business broker, to do a deal with a private equity firm based on the requirements that they had or the size business that they were looking at. But over the years, and especially the last, I would say, five to 10 years, more and more, you'll see a lot of the private equity groups working with what they might consider Main Street business brokers, groups or companies they may have worked with before. And the reason being, they realized that, hey, these guys, although they might not specialize in uh, M&A or lower middle market, they sometimes run across opportunities that might be good for us. So the relationship started to build and the expertise of some of the brokers, especially those that are, uh, belong to the IBBA and the M&A source who have taken classes and courses and understanding of the difference between maybe a M&A transaction and a Main Street transaction, you got realized, you know what, I can do this or I have some opportunities, but how, how can I get the interest of a private equity group? How can I, you know, what are they looking for? What are the key words? What are, you know, what, what's important to them? And as a business owner, you'd say, well, does my business even qualify possibly for a private equity group to even look at it? So today we're going to have on a guest who is, you know, well-known and respected in the private equity world and, and not just well-known and respected, but trusted. And his name is uh, a name that people have looked to and, and trusted for many, many years. And so I'm very happy when I asked him to come on uh, the show today that he very graciously said uh, yes. So what I'm going to do is give a little bit of an introduction or a bio, a bio, a background on my guest because I think it's important for you to know who we're talking to. My guest today is Lamar Stanley, uh, who's with Lead Capital Partners, which he joined in 2022. Prior to that, Lamar was a director at GenCap America, which is a lower middle market private equity firm based in Nashville. Um, and he also uh, was with a company called uh, Diversified Trust Company, which was a Nashville-based wealth management firm where Lamar worked in their private equity strategy group. And if that wasn't enough, uh, before he did all of that in the world of private equity, uh, Lamar served as an intelligence officer for the United States Navy. And, and, and of course, always when we have uh, former military or current military on the show, want to thank them for their service and everything that they've done for our country. So he's been a hero for our country and a hero in the world of private equity. Um, <laughs> Lamar Stanley, I'd like to welcome you to IBBA Insights. Welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you, Chris. And that was way too kind. I really appreciate uh, that intro and, and also really appreciate you having me on the show. It, it genuinely, I meant it when I said it was my pleasure to come on and, and I will echo a lot of what you said in your intro about uh, IVBA members more and more. We are having more and more interactions with IVBA members here at the kind of lower middle market private equity group phase and companies 
seasons of development. So really happy to to be on the show and get a little bit more exposure with the with the IBBA members. Well, we're gonna we're gonna jump right into the questions because I have a lot of them for you. One, <laughs> one, I think I want to start. I think I want to start with the very foundation of private equity. People hear private equity group and they don't really understand what what that means. What exactly is a private equity group? So, well, I mean, simply put, it's just the the inverse of public equities, right? So it's not traded in public markets. But what I think the the root of that question is, is, you know, how do we work? And what I'll tell you is there are all different shapes and sizes of private equity groups. And I can kind of speak to ours and it's pretty, it's typical of what a lot of people will find in the lower middle market, whereas groups will go out and they will raise money from private investors, whether that be wealthy families or individuals or from institutional investors like state pension funds, endowments, universities. Um, And then they will take those commitments of capital and they will spend somewhere between four and six typically years uh, to deploy that capital and they're calling that capital over that period. So let's say, for example, an investor says, yep, I'm good for a million dollars. Then the private equity group will go out and find opportunities over six million, over six years and then go back to that group whenever they find an opportunity and say, all right, we are ready to take 20% of your uh, committed capital and we'll invest it for you. And we go out and find those lower middle market businesses that are a good fit with our strategy and what we pitched them on when we went out to raise that capital. And then, you know, in a perfect world, we help those companies grow. And, uh, and then at the end of our um, investment period, we sell them. So what is typical among private equity firms is that looks something like 10 years. So you have a roughly five year investment, or I'm sorry, investment period, and then another five year hold period and then you plan to exit and get the investors all their money back plus a, you know, somewhere around 8% or more return. And what makes us a little bit unique at lead capital is we're a little bit longer dated fund. I I would say we, we tend to speak in terms of decades as opposed to five year increments. So we, we like to think that we are building businesses that will grow and sustain over long periods of time because anyone who's, you know, growing a business knows it just takes time and there are a lot of decisions that you need to make that might be good for one year down the road, but are not necessarily good for 10 years down the road and to maximize the growth of the company. And that's really what we are targeting is, you know, really maximizing the potential growth of companies by having a little bit longer investment horizon. And, and that's mentioned too, it's very difficult. I mean, I make, a, I make a living going out and trying to find good deals and it's very difficult. And so whenever we find a great deal, we don't want to sell. <laughs> we want to, we want to stay invested as long as we can, as do our investors. And that's, that's really what, how we differentiate ourselves at lead, but sorry, that sorry for the plug on lead, but there was just kind of a, a good segue to explain how the industry works. No, that's, that's fair. More than fair. And I appreciate that. You know, one of the things that I hear from business brokers and even business owners, I have them come up to me and they say, well, you know, I have a private equity group interested in, in my business or this business and they're a billion dollar fund. So they don't even have to go to the banks. They can just write the check. Can you, can you clarify that a little bit, Lamar? Sure. 
Yeah. So uh, the in the typical transaction, we're not just just writing the check, and and the reason for that is is you know the way for us to maximize returns for our investors is to not use all of their money in every investment. If we can go out and get relatively cheap debt to help finance part of the transaction, and that money doesn't come out of our investors, then that that helps the returns. Um, so we will. You know, it really depends on the investment, but, you know, we're usually looking for somewhere around half the transactions worth of debt. Um, but, but again, that varies based on industry and, um, and the size of the business. But, uh, that is somewhat typical. And again, not to keep making plugs for lead. Uh, we are a little bit unique in that we do provide all the capital, but it's, you know, some part of the capital that we're putting in is structured as debt. And some of his equity, um, but yeah, that it's not exactly right to say that you know the private equity fund can write the whole thing. I, I, most private equity funds are not anxious to do that. Yeah, no, they want to make whatever they have uh, equal uh, a lot larger number than than what they have to leverage into, so they could do more deals and, like you exactly. said, get a better return on the investment for their investors. And happy investors mean that they'll. Uh, reinvest and 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 be happy to to do so, or be happy with with your with your performance. So we have business brokers and business owners listening to the show, and you know a, a main street business broker might feel, well, you know, I, I sometimes I stumble upon a really uh, a large listing that might be good for private equity. And I know, can you talk about with, within the private equity world? You know, uh, they may look for a platform company and what that means, or once they have a platform company, they're looking for an add-on acquisition and how a business broker could determine what might be a good fit for a business, business size that a private equity group might look at and what category that might fall into. Sure. So how people define uh, a platform and add-on obviously varies widely. Um, a lot of times what people will shop to us as a quote unquote add on looks like a platform to us because we're doing deals in that one to five million of EBITDA. Um, but, you know, we, but we will have some investments that we look at, uh, that have say $3 million of cash flow and we're characterizing them as an add on because we already have something in the space. Um, and so, that is, in my opinion, the most important differentiator is if they have a bigger listing, I always go out and try and find groups that are already in that industry. Um, not, not least of which, you know, the main reason obviously is because it would be a logical add-on and it would probably be something they're already looking for. But two, uh, it's just an industry that they're clearly very comfortable with and, and getting them to the finish line will be that much easier than if you go to a group that has no experience in that specific industry. And so um, it, it's just getting folks who already know the basics of the industry just help transactions flow a little smoother. And I'll also add that, um, and I always repeat this to business brokers whenever I'm talking to them, is we love to see more deals than fewer. And so I, I always say, if you think one, it's too small or we might not be interested. We will never be upset that we got to see a deal, um, even if it is too small or in a different industry than we're interested in. Seeing more deals is better. And more often than not, you know, we will see something that somebody said, oh, I didn't think you would be interested. And 
and lo and behold, we we chase it hard. So uh, that that as a rule of thumb, it's it's always good to let people know. Lamar, being a proud, I'm a proud member of the IBBA and the MA Source, and I've been doing business for a lot of years. And I run into, you know, the the business broker dealing with a peg. And and today, 25 years later, uh, it's a lot different than when I first started. So when you're talking to a business broker who's relatively new or new to working with private equity groups or being in the lower middle market or whether it be or, or has an add-on acquisition, what are some important things that the business broker should understand that might be different than what they do when they're working on a main street listing? Well, um, it's a great question. The, the, the difference, I guess, uh, when you're dealing with a private equity group, you know, manufacturing companies make widgets and we do deals. And so for that reason, we are singularly 100% focused on trying to get deals to the finish line. And that differentiates us from some, you know, Main Street listing buyers in that sometimes Main Street listing buyers might have a job that they're currently in doing something else, or they're a business owner looking to expand uh, with an add-on opportunity, but during that time, they're also trying to run their own business. And so they effectively have two jobs, whereas we have effectively one, uh, and that is to deploy our capital. And so what I tell people, frankly, frequently is that it's going to feel like we're moving faster than than what conventionally they see um and that is by design because as we all know i know you know as well Gress, is that time kills deals and so we want to move as quickly as we can not because we're trying to shove one past the goalie it's because we're just trying to be as efficient with our time and with our resources as we can be. And so whenever I tell people um, that it's, it's important that they bear that in mind when they're preparing a company for sale, and what you don't want to be doing is building the plane in the air, so to speak. And so you want to get all of the due diligence requirements. So, you know, financial statements, working capital calculations, uh, management bios, customer lists, all that stuff should be bottled up pretty well before you bring it to market because the private equity group is going to be banging for that stuff pretty quick. Um, and, and if you have to start compiling that stuff during the process, it, it'll slow it down. And, you know, no private equity group will admit that they will, will say that they're going to lose interest because things are moving slowly, but they certainly will lose conviction that a deal is going to happen if things are moving too slowly. And, uh, and, and I, as I mentioned earlier, you know, our investment period in some cases is only four years. And so we gotta, we gotta get things done quickly. Um, and, and the other piece too, that I always like to mention is working with a peg is not unlike every other relationship that we all have in our life. Uh, communication is, is the most important piece. So being responsive, being open about issues and bringing them up quickly, that that stuff helps a lot uh, moving a process along. Well, let's also talk about one of the big differences in a Main Street transaction and a lower middle market transaction. When a business broker is taught how to sell a business, the majority of the time they're told, 
all right, the business is, you know, going to be free, uh, be sold debt free, no encumbrances. It's, uh, you know, the seller will keep his receivables and pay his payables. And there's certainly no conversation about uh, working capital, uh, working capital being mm -hmm. included in the deal. So now we turn over to, so they've, they've prepped their, their seller, uh, that how the transaction is going to go with a buyer. And then all of a sudden the private equity group comes along and what do they say to that, uh, Lamar, when they're looking at a deal, how important is working capital? How, how often are the receivables and or payables included in the transaction and not excluded like a, a main street transaction? Sure. So for our deals, at least, and I can't speak to everyone, but working capital is always a factor. Um, and, you know, if I said that time is the biggest killer of deals earlier, uh, the second most common culprit is that working capital adjustment or calculation. And the way we look at it is it's not unlike buying a car. You know, I mean, we don't want to buy, we're buying the future cash flow of the business. And similarly, if you're buying a car, you're buying it to drive around. And so you don't want to buy the car with no gas in it. And that's the way we look at working capital is we need enough capital in the business to keep it running um, right after we buy it. Because otherwise it's just going to require a cash infusion, and, which is effectively an increase in the purchase price uh, if we have to put a bunch of cash into it immediately. Now that said, it doesn't make any sense for a seller to sell a car with a full tank of gas either, right? And we get that as well. And so the, the most important part when we're talking about working capital is not about the amount. Uh, the most important part for us when we're talking to a seller about working capital is just that we all agree what the definition is. And, you know, the simple definition is current assets minus current liabilities. But what we will typically do is go back some period of time that makes sense to that business and see what the average is of that calculation over a time period and say, all right, this is what we think it should be. And we, you know, work pretty closely with the intermediary with you, Chris, and, and the seller and say, all right, can we all agree that this is roughly where it's been hanging for the past, call it six months, a year. And then we try and aim for that at the, at the transaction. And, when we get to the end or, you know, at closing, there's going to be some time after the transaction when we've been able to do an independent determination of what the working capital was at closing. And then we have a, a true up, if you will, to try and make sure that we hit it. And uh, going back to the car analogy, what, what we don't want to find out is that, you know, like gas in the tank that the owner hasn't been refilling the inventory. Uh, you know, he's just been slowly bleeding it off while the transaction has been going and, and we suddenly were left with no inventory, no cash, and we're rebuilding the business right after we take control of it. So it is, I guess the short answer to your question is, it's critically important. And, and I, I think most private equity funds will say that, you know, that just because it is a little bit more calcu uh, complicated calculation and that a lot of business owners don't think about day to day, that tends to, be a, a common point of conflict in transactions. So I would say if a business owner is listening to this episode, uh, working capital is going to be more than likely included 
in a transaction, especially if you're dealing with a private equity group and you're of a company of that kind of a size. And if you're a business broker, um, it's better, it, best to understand the terminology, understand the formula and to be able to educate your client because then you wind up looking a lot smarter and when you bring it to their attention, then it's not something that shocks them and they're not going to look at you and say, well, wait a second, you, you never explained that to me. Now I'm giving up that much more. They don't really understand. They're not giving it up when it was really never theirs because it's not like they can bleed that money out of their company tomorrow and then, and then have the ability to run their company. They won't be able to pay the bills. Um, so, right. Lamar, we, we run into a business broker now. He's got his uh, a listing of substance, of size, things that might be a possibility for a, um, a private equity group, either for an add-on or a platform. And, you know, they put together a SIM or they put together a package mm -hmm. on the company, which is so much better today than what it used to be. 25 years ago, a business broker, all they would put together would be a one-page summary of the company and good luck if that information was right. But now they're becoming a little more sophisticated. And, and when you're dealing with a private equity group, they're expecting certain amount of information from the broker or the intermediary. So if someone's putting together a SIM or a CBR, whatever they want to call it um, in their company, um, what is it that's important to, to be in there from your perspective of a private equity group? What are you looking for? Hmm. Yeah. Um, for us, and I think this probably is accurate for most private equity groups, but it's, it's really, I'll say four things. Um, one, and this is more general uh, than a specific thing, is I would encourage business brokers to maintain the typical structure of a sim. Every, every, you know, a lot of people want to take some poetic license um, and you know make the sim their magnum opus, but that, in my opinion, is probably not the best practice. Just because private equity groups are looking at a lot of sims, and for that reason it needs to be pretty easily digestible. And the best way to do that is to follow the commonly regarded standard format. And that standard format, um, I'll say, is have an executive summary, which basically highlights the, the key points of the business and the transaction, uh, the, the key investment considerations, so um, what makes it attractive and differentiates it from the competition, and then also what this is a commonly omitted part, but I think it's critically important in Sims is a kind of an overview of the transaction. What does, what does the owner want to do? Do they want to sell the business 100% and retire the day after the transaction? Or do they want to engage some of the management and get some equity into their hands? Or do they just want some growth equity and maintain a majority of the business? And, and because I think a lot of private equity funds will gain or lose interest based on those details or, you know, they can modify their offer based on what they understand about the transaction. Then um, in there also the company overview. So obviously everything about the company, the history, um, the timeline kind of as it grew, uh, any product differentiation, uh, customers and customer concentration issues or lack thereof, the products. Um, any marketing strategies that are unique and, and maybe some management bios just so people can get familiar. And then um, growth opportunities are, are a common part of SIMS. Uh, industry overview as well. And then lastly, and most important, frankly, the financials. And those, um, you know, that kind of goes into the common 
commonly accepted SIM structure. But in, in addition to that, the, the three other pieces that I would say that need to go into a SIM or what, what you need to think about as you're putting together the SIM is you need to focus on the most important parts. And for 90% of private equity firms, I would say, they are at least at first glance going to really focus on two areas. And that is that executive summary. So they just need to understand what the business is and what they do just to see if they fit with that private equity group's model. And then to the, the financials, um, just to, again, we're just trying to make check boxes there and uh, make sure it's a fit for that private equity group strategy. And then I also tell people, and Lamar, it needs to, I'll go ahead. No, finish. Uh, just the other piece that I always emphasize, there's two real other pieces I emphasize about Sims. And one of those being, it needs to be an honest look at the business. You know, it does not benefit anyone to hide negative or weaknesses of the business. Um, it, it's important that, you know, the private equity group see those early. Um, and I completely understand this is a selling document and you have a commitment to your client to go out and sell this business. So you don't want to paint it in a negative light, but you have to balance that with keeping the trust uh, with the private equity group. Because if you create distrust early, that really jeopardizes your ability to close a transaction. But again, I recognize that's a balance. And that was the last thing I was going to say. It's just tell a story. You need to let the sim sing, if you will. You know, if they're the, I, I wish that I could, you know, pipe into our podcast, a common investment committee discussion, but ultimately it comes down to us understanding the business and understanding the story of the business. And that's what the sim really should convey is saying, you know, this is the history of the business. These, the growth opportunities, and this is how it's going to make that hockey stick come to life. Yeah, I know a lot of the pegs, they'll tell you, you know, you try to hide the weaknesses, but really you should, you know, talk about the weaknesses because the weaknesses to them can be opportunity because they're looking at it. What Absolutely. can we do and how can we come in and, and take this company and make it better? Because if we can't and it's already perfect, what, what do we add to it? Where's the added value? <laughs> and, and, and so that's, impo that's important. That, that, I couldn't agree more. And, and a lot of people lose sight of that. Is that looks like opportunities, private equity groups. And it just it builds trust with the private equity group when you've been open with those things and they look at those things. And if you get out ahead of them and you tell the story of the weaknesses, you can you control the narrative. You can say, hey, look, this is there is customer concentration, for example, but you can point to why it is not very threatening. You know, not all customer concentration is the same. You could be a sole supplier that the client really can't find anywhere else or it's long-term contracts or whatever it is. But the point is, is if you point out the weaknesses early and you control them, they, they, they tend to be mitigated as opposed to a private equity group uncovering that halfway through the process. Absolutely. And, and on the financial side, to go back just a, a step, you know, one of the things I think business brokers need to become more aware of is, you know, typically they'll promote a business and they'll talk about, you know, the, last year's financials and, and where the financials are this year. And maybe they even try to put together some kind of a pro forma on the company, but really what they need to start 
hearing and understanding of the letters TTM, the trailing 12 months, because I don't know of an equity group that that's not looking at the le- the trailing 12 months. You know, what have you done for me lately? That, yeah, that, that's exactly right. Um, the Lamar rule, and again, every private equity fund looks at things different, but you know, if you want to go forward three years with pro forma numbers, you should go back three as well. But to your point, Chris, the most important one is TTM. You know, we want to see how it's how it's performing currently. Lamar, in, in Main Street Business Brokerage, most of the time, buyers are buying cash flow. They may even be buying a job, a very well-paid job, but they're buying the cash flow. That seems to be the most important thing to them going forward. When a private equity group is looking at a company, and we're not going to say money's not important because anyone that tells you that is lying. So money is always important. <laughs> and it's always an important part of the transaction. But what there are other components. What do private equity groups look for in a company? What are they looking for beyond the money? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, you, I mean, I, I will say we look at things very similarly. So the money does matter. But that said, for example, we sometimes are not as focused on the money because we're looking for a foothold into a new market. Uh, we could be looking for uh, uh, building our customer list to sell a product or a, a suite of products that are already existing in our current portfolio. Um, we could be, you know, looking for um, talent uh, that exists in the business that we can expand into other places in our portfolio. So it's not always all about money. And, and that is an important point, too, by the way. I'm glad you brought that up because a lot of times business brokers will fashion the sim um, based on what a business owner has told them. And that's the right way to do it. But you also, when you're you're actually putting pen to paper on the sim, think about the buyer and who it's going to be. And like, for example, if you're selling to a strategic company that is just looking at this as an add-on, they might not be as worried about margins as you think they are because they know that they are going to generate some margin expansion just by virtue of the fact they have better buyer relationships or what have you. And for that, for that reason, it might be make a little bit more sense to go in more detail about the customer base uh, that you know that that strategic company doesn't have, or they have a talent pool. Like for example, for us, we've bought physician practices in the past, and if we see a long list of physicians that can benefit the practice, but we feel like they are underutilized currently. Well, in that case, uh, cash flow might not be as important as what we perceive their bandwidth to be. Um, and that's just a, a, a good example of it's not all about cash flow. But that said, I mean, you know, we do always ask for EBITDA. And you heard me when I gave the lead pitch that we're looking for companies with one to five of EBITDA. So, so cash flow does matter. Okay, yeah, money money does matter. And uh, the more money, yep. the, the most of the time, the better the multiple. Um, so, But yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, industry, revenue, history, product, the employees, you know, all, all play a big part in that because, and that rolls into kind of the next question to a business owner out there, you know, what is a private equity firm, once they buy a company, what is their participation level going forward? You know, are they going to come in and be there and r- sit in the office and run the business day to day? Or is it, you know, t- talk about the role, because I know that's not going to be it. So talk about what the role of the equity group looks post-transaction. Sure. 
Well, uh, as I'm sorry that I keep repeating this, but it, it varies. <laughs> so not every private equity group approaches things the same way. Um, we fancy ourselves as being very involved, but I do feel like a lot of times private equity groups are characterized negatively as being too involved. And we certainly don't like to think of ourselves that way. Um, what we frankly are trying to do is provide more bandwidth to business owners. And so it's not uncommon that we will go look at a company that we're looking to acquire and the business owner already has a great feel. I mean, they are, you know, we're built, we're standing on the shoulders of our forefathers when we're buying a business. And so the business owner typically has a great sense of where the growth opportunities exist, but they, they weren't able to realize that growth simply because they were too busy you know, the, the common phrase is too busy working in the business to actually work on the business. And what we try and do, but with our level of involvement is we're trying to be that additional bandwidth to help them work on the business and grow the business. And so there are some private equity firms that need intense reporting every month and there are wickets and KPIs that need to be hit on a monthly basis. I would not characterize ourselves as that. Um, we are not the group that's going to parachute in with machetes and try and, you know, flip over the company and, and change everything. We are much more builders as opposed to rebuilders. Um, but there are certainly groups that, that do it that way. Uh, but I, I think by and large, private equity groups have incentives that are align much more closely with business owners than a lot of business owners give private equity groups credit for. We, we're all trying to move towards the same goal. And, and a lot of times the, the, the difference is just the speed in which the group versus uh, old ownership likes to see that change happen. Lamar, I could talk to you probably for three hours, but I'm going to limit it to a couple more questions because there are things I want to get in there uh, on this show sure. that I feel are important. The um, in Main Street Business Brokerage, a lot of times the person sells the business and 30 days later, they're gone, 60 days, maybe 90 days at a stretch. But, you know, when you're selling a company of, of, a, of a certain size and equity groups going to look into it, we know the management team is very important. But a lot of times the owner becomes very important. And um, not only that, an owner may have. Uh, real reason to want to stay around after the transaction with the company because maybe they're young, maybe they're in their 40s or 50s and not quite ready to retire and have a lot of value. And they have the equity group that comes in and helps them to build and grow. So talk about the different type of deals that an equity group would be involved in from an outright sale to a recapitalization to, to, to whatever else might be options for business owners and why they might make sense. Sure. Well, in most of our deals, it is uh, it has been the case where the business owner stays and they will roll over some portion of their equity into the new new co, if you will. And our goal is for their second bite of the apple to be bigger than the first. So when we bought their business, we wanted them to make more money the second time they sell it. They sell it with us. Um, and so it is critically important that they stick around, but are also incentivized to want to see the business succeed. Now that said, you know, not every business owner is looking to do that. And we recognize that a lot of business owners, to your point, are looking to retire in the next quarter. 
And we're comfortable with that as long as we feel like we have the management expertise uh, inside the business or if we can find that management expertise elsewhere to help build the business. But we love it when the owner really sees the vision and likes our model and wants to stick around and and continue to grow the business with us. And we feel like we're a really good fit for that because of our long-term strategy. We just, we, we feel like we're able to realize a lot of the opportunities that these, these business owners have in their head. And, and not to mention too, we, we really like to have the old owner around as a river guide to, you know, they know where all the bodies are buried. They know, again, all the customers and they know how to, you know, fix things or, you know, develop new relationships or they know the conferences that they should be attending and all those types of things. And, you know, there are certainly industries where we have a lot of familiarity, but we're never going to know that specific business as well as the owner. It's their baby. And so whenever we have an owner that wants to, you know, stick around, maybe slow down a little bit, but stick around and, and continue to build the dream with us, we are, we're excited to do that. And, uh, and frankly, we make, I feel like we make a pretty strong pitch for what the opportunities are and they can continue to, you know, move towards retirement if that's what they're aiming to do or to accelerate the gas pedal, um, whatever it happens to be. Uh, so it, it, it really varies, but that kind of goes back to what I was talking about in the sim, the, you know, what the expectations are for the transaction. We can build the the right transaction, but it's key for the intermediary, you know, the business broker to explain to the business owner, say, hey, look, we need to know what are your expectations? What do you want to do? And if it is to retire, that's great. But just as long as everyone knows that from the jump, that that's really helpful. I often tell people that if everything is in the favor of the seller, uh, one, the deal might not get done. But even if it does, that a lot of times just means a reduction in price because the risk uh, assessment done by any buyer and even a, an equity group, they look at that and say, how, how risky is this transaction? And if someone is going to go away 30 days after the close, they want all cash. Uh, they don't want to, you know, they, they don't want to take any of the responsibility on anything. They don't want to leave anything in reserve or anything behind or anything held up in escrow or to some degree to be at risk just in case, guess what? Anything we were told wasn't exactly right. You know, it, right. it, it makes the transaction very scary. So, but on the flip right. side, an equity group comes in and, or someone comes in and they say, guess what? We believe in your growth. We believe in everything. You know, we love it. But now it's basically what you're saying is put your money where your mouth is because, hey, we're going to pay you, but you really want to earn. There's a little thing called an earn out. And can you talk about an earn out and what, how, how often that is, uh, part of a transaction and what that might mean to a business owner? Sure. We've, uh, we've structured our outs, uh, in the past and, um, it, you know, there are some groups that will tell you that today's earn out is tomorrow's litigation. <laughs> and and the, the problem is, <laughs> is, is it's very difficult. I shouldn't say very difficult, but it can be difficult for, you know, everyone to have their incentives aligned knowing that there's an earnout out there. And, and what I mean by that is, let's say that the earnout is structured around EBITDA. And there are things that a buyer can do to, you know, 
depress EBITDA for the number of years, one or two, that the earnout applies to, to ensure that the purchase price remains low and the earnout is not paid. Now, do I think private equities, by and large, or private equity funds are by and large are doing that? I don't think so. I think, you know, everyone generally, I think people's incentives and nature is generally good in the world, but business owner might not see it that way because they're not in the business anymore. Um, but like, for example, if a private equity group wants to hire people for growth, that will obviously depress EBITDA and, and hamper an earnout structure. And so, so while we do it, yeah, I mean, just because sometimes there's a valuation gap that has to be gotten through somehow, and that's earnout is a common lever that we can pull to try and get to that, you know, common agreed upon valuation. But um, it, it's just it it can be complicated. Um, so I, I guess my other piece of advice regarding earnouts is to move as far up the P and L as you can on the earnout. So you know, using revenue as a measure or, you know, gross margin, whatever it happens to be, but try and keep it towards the top of the P&L as opposed to the bottom, just because that's where disagreements occur, if you will. And that also helps when, you know, the, the business owner, you know, you tell them, hey, yeah, we, we can get you to your price, but you got to help us get you there. And that's, that's their involvement and, and their confidence. They're going to remain with the company. They're going to uh, you're now going to support them to build and grow. And, and if everyone buys yep. into the story, uh, it becomes a reality, which is a, a win-win for everybody. So we're coming to the end of our time, but I have two quick things that I want to go over. One, uh, first, if you had to give advice to a business broker uh, or even a business owner that's going to be getting involved with a private equity group looking at a business, what's the best piece of advice or, or the advice you might give to them? Yeah, the, uh, one the one piece of advice I would say kind of goes back to my earlier point about don't build the plane in the air. Uh, get as much information about the business put together that you can uh, before the company actually comes to market. Get them ready. Uh, if you can get a sell side QOV quality of earnings done, do that um, just because that will go a long way towards convincing a private equity group that the financials are in good shape, which is the most important element for deals of our size. Um, and then again, it's, this is not unique to the M&A industry. This is all of life, just communicate, communicate, communicate. And so whenever things come up, I feel like most people on both sides of the table, business owners and private equity groups, everyone is pretty reasonable and issues come up and everyone gets that. And so, as long as those issues are communicated, uh, usually people can come to some type of agreement or negotiate towards a spot that everyone's happy with. But if people don't know what's going on behind the curtain, that's when you start to lose trust and that's when deals get jeopardized. And I would, I would add that if you're out there, private equity groups, don't be afraid of them. They're not this big giant monster. They, they want to do deals just as badly <laughs> as you want to do deals. It just matters. Is it a fit? If it's a fit, that's great. If it's not, that just means this one's not a fit. Doesn't mean the next one won't be a fit. And by the way, with equity groups, the one you have today might not be a fit. And all of a sudden, six months from now, eight months ago, uh, eight months from now, 
they're now looking at in that market. Now that you get the call or the email that says, hey, do you still have that company that's available? I can't tell you how many times that's happened. So don't give up. Don't be afraid. Explore all your options because the more options you have, the more the better you're serving your clients or the better you're serving yourself again if you're if you're selling your business. So um, Lamar, on, on that aspect, uh, you know, I want to thank you for all the answers you gave. I mean, quality of earnings. I stayed away from that because I think we could do a whole show on that. And I may have you back to talk about <laughs> right. those things. You know, working capital and quality of earnings reports, you know, they, they, those are such, you know, big discussions amongst uh, intermediaries uh, and, and business owners and in and, and any kind of trans in these size transactions. But I want to take one last opportunity to touch on something we didn't talk about yet is your involvement in the M&A source and, and what's coming up and how that uh, can be beneficial to business intermediaries out there wanting to learn more possibly about private equity groups. Yes, I'm glad that you mentioned that. So um, I am uh, deeply involved with M&A Source. I'm actually the incoming chairman of the organization. So if that gives you any sense of congratulations. How, uh, well, thank you. I just wanted to really convey my level of commitment to the organization. I think IBBA and M&A Source are both great organizations that are frankly, a perfect fit for our model. And we are trying to find every way to get involved as we can. And as you mentioned, um, we do have the conference coming up. Uh, it is the 22nd, or I should say the 21st, really, through the 24th. Sorry, I should know this. Yeah, through the 24th or through the 23rd, I guess, through the end of the day. Um, I don't fly out to the 24th. But uh, in Orlando, Florida, and per usual, um, it is going to be one or we're going to have classes and courses before. So if there are any of these things, like you were mentioning, working capital, uh, we'll have programming around that, uh, as well as other educational opportunity around sell-side modeling and corporate finance. Um, we'll have some advanced tax courses. Um, it's just a re it's really rich with content, and that's not the reason that I come. Obviously, I come just to meet with intermediaries um, like yourself, and I just try and connect. And just because so much of this business is not about working capital and quality of earnings discussions, it's all about the community and developing relationships with one another. And this goes towards, you know, just developing a sense of comfort that everyone understands you know, who the firms are that they're working with and who they're dealing with. And I think M&A Source and IBBA, for that matter, are the best forums for that. It's a really collegial community. I can't tell you how many times during a week I get on the phone with members of M&A Source and IBBA to just talk about stuff, you know, and not necessarily deals that we're pursuing, but just, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing this earn out. And do you have any thoughts or ideas on how you've structured in the past? I love having those conversations because, frankly, I learn as much as I, I teach on those calls. I, I love to kind of bounce ideas off of one another. And more often than not, I wind up at the end of the call or <laughs> initiating the call just say, hey, what do you think about this? And how would your business owners feel if we did something like this or that? And and that, that it's just incredibly helpful because I will say that is a – that's a problem in our industry and it's, 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 you know, it's not something that I expect to be resolved. It's just part of the industry is that so many of us work alone and unafraid behind our phone and computer. And so M&A Source and IBBA are really good outlets for us to pool our thoughts and really work together to 
understand one what's going on in the industry, but also develop relationships that we can hopefully get transactions done with. Well, Mahar, I want to I want to thank you for many things. First, for your uh, everything you've done in your early life for our for our country, your service. Thank you for that. Oh. Thank you for what you do for our industry, uh, for your service to the uh, what you do for everyone with the, with the M&A source and promoting the M&A source and the IBBA. I thank you for that. And I thank you very much for coming on and taking time out of your busy schedule to appear on IBBA Insights. It was truly, truly, it was a blessing for me and those that are listening, I believe it will be very educational and beneficial for them also. So one last thing before I say goodbye, someone wants to get in touch with you, Lamar, what's the best way to do that? Yes. So I am at Lead Capital Partners, and that is leadcp.com. Uh, all of our info is there, and you can reach me directly at L Stanley, L S T A N L E Y, at leadcp.com. And uh, I am, like I mentioned, I, it doesn't have to be a deal. I'd love to always love having conversations with folks in IDVA and MA Source. So feel free to reach out whenever. Once again, I want to thank Lamar Stanley for taking his time out to be with us today. Those of you that have listened to the episode now have a much better understanding of what to look for if you're getting involved with a transaction that's going to involve a private equity group. And, uh, you know, listen to this a couple of times because there, there are some real jewels in here, nuggets that uh, Lamar shared that will really help you uh, moving forward with that. Those of you that want to uh, listen to episodes of IBBA Insights. Just go to ibba.org slash insights. Once you're there, you can subscribe by clicking on the Apple, Android, or email icons. And as we always say, then you'll never have to miss another episode again. I want to personally thank all of you for listening today. I look forward to speaking with you again on the next episode of IBBA Insights, when we'll bring you more great guests that cover, that cover topics meaningful to you and your business. Thank you.